Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What if we had a show about solutions? You know, a repair manual for the real world. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Boring. (laughs) Yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? I hate my job, and I don't know what to do about it. So I want to know, Jim, how how do do we we fix it? it? The numbers are pretty alarming. A Gallup poll says less than one-third of U.S. workers were engaged in their jobs in 2014. Nearly one in five were actively disengaged or just fed up. That's a huge number of people who are either bored, distracted, or simply not doing their job as well as they should. So who are those lucky people who do enjoy their jobs? Well, no surprise here. According to Gallup, it's managers and executives who had the highest level of engagement, while on the other end of the spectrum, industrial employees manufacturing and production workers most likely to be disengaged. Our guest today is a pretty interesting guy. Psychologist Ron Friedman is the author of The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Now, how do we fix it is all about solutions. So let's look first, though, at at what's wrong. Ron, this is a huge problem. Is it possibly worse than we realize this problem of bored, disengaged workers, dysfunctional workplaces? How bad is it out there? I mean, how dysfunctional are some workplaces? Um, worldwide, over 80% of employees are disengaged. And that means they're not working at their best. They're not at their most creative. They don't get a sense of satisfaction in the way that they do their work. And that then leads them to produce at a lower level. So the the numbers are really staggering. I mean, I think it, Gallup estimates something like $550 million, a billion dollars are lost every year um, to disengagement. And that's in this country. That's right. Well, what I find really interesting is that it's not just in the interest of employees for organizations to do a better job of engaging them, but it's actually in the interest of the business because when employees are engaged, they tend to be more creative, they work harder, and they stay with their company for a longer period of time. So really, it's an argument that we all need to look at in a more careful way because it it benefits both companies and employees alike. Yeah, I've spent most of my career in the magazine business, which is kind of an archetype of the sort of highly engaged, creative business. But I've seen magazines that uh, where the staff is really on board and, and working towards a common goal. And I've seen ones where people are 
alienated or fed up or not really working together. And, and you can actually see it in the product. You can see it in the magazine itself. It's just not as good. That's right. And we live in a world now where everyone's job is to be creative or solve problems or to collaborate on some level. And so the psychological perspective is one that every organization now needs to consider. It's no longer a matter of how hard people are working or how many hours they're sitting behind their desk, but rather how they feel and how they're thinking. Yeah, I come to this after a lifetime in radio, and boy, I've heard some war stories. And it's also supposed to be a creative medium, but very often you get a situation where the employees are kind of shut out from the creative decision-making. They're not asked about sound. They're not asked about uh, what they're doing on the radio. Well, there's a long legacy within business consulting of managers doing the decision-making and employees essentially just doing the work. And what research has now uncovered is that when you invite people to share in the decision-making process, they become more invested and therefore do a better job for you. You're pretty fired up about this. What, What is the human cost of this problem? Incalculable. I can tell you from, from having spent years as a psychologist who taught and studied human motivation in the lab and then having gone off into the corporate world, there's a massive divide between things that I just took for granted as a psychologist about how we can get people to be more creative and more productive and more engaged and what most organizations are doing. And it really is in everything from the way that companies hire to the way that managers motivate to the way that the basic layout and design of the modern office, all of it appears blind to a wealth of research. And, you know, it's not really for a lack of interest. Every manager I know wants a great workplace. The trouble is they don't have time to pour over academic journals. So Mm -hmm. in in writing my book, The Best Place to Work, what I did was I tried to take all of the research, distill it down and make it actionable for both managers and employees alike so that we can all start applying some of the things that science has uncovered on how we can all work more effectively. So was there like an aha moment where you said, wow, so many managers think they're getting it and they're not? And I can help them. You know, I I don't even think it's the case that they think they're getting it. I think that managers are interested in better ways of motivating and better ways of creating organizations that are more fully functional. The trouble is that they don't have the data. They don't have the time to pour over the data. And, you know, years ago, we had this revolutionary book called Moneyball Mm -hmm. that introduced this new idea about how we can predict whether a player is going to contribute to their their club. Yeah, this is the Michael Lewis book about baseball. It was the Oakland A's. That's exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. And and so before Moneyball, scouts used to think we just need home run hitters because home run hitters are going to produce more runs and therefore we'll win more games. But as it turns out, when you look at the data, what you really want are players who get on base more often, Mm -hmm. the ones who are taking walks and hitting singles. And um, by having that information, by having that data, they're now better able to um, draft players for their team. And uh, now you see organizations, just about every sport, have an analytics person on their staff. I think we're going to get to that place in workplaces where we're going to have analytics people looking at people's engagement and figuring out what is it that we can do to improve. And when you look at what it is that actually leads people to have an engaging workplace experience, it's not what we typically think. It's not a high salary. It's not the perks that you see at all of these fancy uh, high-tech places. It's really about having your basic human psychological needs fulfilled on a daily basis. So you don't have to be a mini Google. And, no, you uh, don't need the free sushi. Well, you know, well, one thing that I, as a, as a longtime boss, that took me a long time to learn was, yes, you have to motivate people, but not everybody's motivated by what you're motivated by. I tend to gravitate towards people with big goals and, and big personalities, very creative, you know, editor, writer, designer types in, that, in the magazine business. 
And it took me a long time to learn that not everybody had to be that hard-driving person. You also need the quiet, introverted person. You don't want a an extroverted copy editor. <laughs> you know, right. you want a copy editor who's really happy, working hard and focused in a quiet, meticulous way. And that is what he or she finds rewarding. Whereas somebody else, you know, a salesperson is probably the opposite of that. And it took me a while to get that. And I, I bet you for most managers, they probably feel they can manage people like themselves, but maybe not so quick to know that you don't want everybody to be like yourself. The whole thing about diversity, I think, really does matter on a team. Yes, and I think that it's particularly necessary when you're looking for a creative product. So if you you see a lot of organizations actually saying we're going to hire for cultural fit. Mm-hmm. And what that means is we're going to look for a certain type of personality and we're going to try to replicate it. And that makes some good sense if the work is simple. If you're looking if you have a, everything outlined in terms of what people are going to do and you just need them to do that work, then that makes sense because then they're going to get along. But if you're looking for a creative product, you actually don't want too much similarity because that if you have everyone being exposed to the same ideas again and again, that gets people complacent mm-hmm. and doesn't get them thinking outside of the box. I tend to be somebody who likes agreement and likes to go for consensus. And it took me a while to realize the most valuable person on my staff was the kind of cranky misanthrope who wasn't afraid to disagree with me and pour some cold water on a story idea, say, that I thought was really great and then realized, "Mm, maybe not so great and saved us a lot of unproductive work by actually bringing a little negativity into the conversation. That's an interesting uh, story. You know, there there is a study that I talk about in the book that looks at what happens when you have people who are all very similar to one another on a team versus when you have a team that is the majority of people who whom are similar, but then you have someone who's an outsider. And as it turns out, the teams with a mix of, of both people who are familiar with one another and an outsider tend to perform better. And it's not because the outsider is getting people to think differently, but rather because in having to explain their ideas to the outsider, that gets people re-examining their own assumptions. Wow, that makes total sense. I, I want to hear more solutions. So let's get into some of those solutions. Let's, let's start with the employers. I know you have some very concrete ideas about what employers could do. Let's, let's get started on that. So we talked about how psychological needs are at the heart of what gets people to be engaged at their work. And so what are those needs? And the three needs that people have, and we have decades of research on this, is one, feeling like you're competent at your job and having the ability to grow your competence on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Two is feeling like you're connecting with others in a meaningful way. And then three is autonomy, feeling like you have choice in the way you go about doing your work. So as an employer, what you need to think about is how can I get my employees feeling more uh, competent, more connected to one another, and more autonomous? So let's take competence first. Mm -hmm. How do you grow people's competence on the job? And so the key thing to remember is that when we view, as employees, when we view our uh, organizations as a vehicle for growth, we have that sense of attachment. And so that's beneficial for us and for our company. So three easy things that any organizations could do. One is um, give people a reading budget. Give your employees a quarterly or even a monthly reading budget where they're allowed to go out and buy a book that's relevant to their industry in some way. And that can lead them to start thinking about new ideas, start reintroducing some new new uh, processes into their work. You can establish an office library. It's very easy and very inexpensive. Yeah, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It does not cost a lot of money. And then similar to that, even even if, you, if, if that feels too expensive to you, another thing you can do is encourage your employees to take time out during the day to scan industry 
history blogs. Maybe mm-hmm. it's when they're transitioning in from lunch back to work. Take 15 or to 20 minutes, check out industry blogs, and again, that gets you thinking of new ideas. And so what are you doing with this? You're trying to expand an employee's skill set? That's right. You're, by, you're, you're inviting employees to find new ways of recreating their job. And that word recreating I think is really um, – Interesting, both from the employer's perspective and the employee perspective, because in the past, you you took a job and your manager kind of told you what to do, and then you left at 5 o'clock, and that was it. Today, if you're looking to get the most out of employees, you want to invite them to recreate their job by – presenting new ideas about ways that things can be done better. That's a method of getting them more engaged and ultimately a method of getting better ideas seeping in on a regular basis. And one of the things I've seen, I think we've all seen in our lifetimes, is the influence of digital technology on every business is to lower barriers to change and lower barriers to competition, right? So so when a lot of jobs are based on say, an assembly line building a product that doesn't change much from year to year, you can imagine the jobs don't change much. But if you're designing apps, you know, mm-hmm. or working in, in, uh, in any kind of media field, the tech, your tools are changing day to day, your competitors are changing day to day. So the need to have people innovate and change their own jobs, recreate their own jobs, is much greater today than it was when a lot of managers started their careers. You know, Google does this with 20% time. We've all kind of, I think, have heard of this as the idea that you're going to give employees one day a week when they, or maybe even less than that, where they can decide what it is they're going to be working on. And the way Google does this is really interesting where people aren't just sitting at their computer by themselves for that one day, but rather they're recruiting their colleagues to spend their 20% time um, together. And so they're building new projects the entire time they're there. So Gmail came out of this. Uh, Very products that have made Google billions of dollars have come out of 20% time. And so you can imagine, would Google be as innovative as it is if they were waiting, if all their employees were waiting for Sergey Brin to, to determine what it is they were going to work on next? I want to push back a little bit, though, because not everybody works for a tech company. Not everybody works for a company where the business is rapidly changing uh, every year. You may be working as a realtor for a relatively small real estate firm. You may be working as an electrician for a, a, a small group of electricians. You may be working as a plumber. I mean, what do you say to small businesses, not just to big businesses like tech firms? I th- agree with you completely that not every company is going to come up with new products every month like Google. That said, the idea of growing people's sense of competence isn't just for the sake of developing a new product. It's for the sake of getting people more engaged, feeling like they're good at their job. And when they feel good at their job, when they feel like they're growing, they're going to do better work for you regardless of the size of your business. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of your other points I know is you really think it's important to develop this connection between colleagues on a a job. And this is something else. Now, how can employers help with that? There's a, there are a number of ways that any organization can build better connections between their employees. For one, when employees join an organization, what typically happens is people are introduced by their resume. Mm-hmm. Rather than just presenting employees by their professional experience, why not take a little bit of time to talk about what that employee's interests are outside of work? So, for example, here's Jim. He really likes uh, the, the, the New York Jets, and he uh, on the weekends he, t- he likes to go to ballet. What what that does is now you and I have something to relate to um, that goes outside of work matters. And in fact, if you look at the research on the people who are getting along best at work, they're the ones who are spending the most time talking about non-work matters. And so that might seem like, well, maybe they're just gossiping or talking about you know things that aren't benefiting the business. But as it turns out, the better they're connecting, the more. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Engaged they are. Our show is called How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. And we're talking with uh, Ron Friedman. And, and Ron Friedman is the author of the new book, The Best Place to Work. Uh, you're also a workplace psychologist and expert on how to motivate people. And we're talking right now about what employers can do to motivate their workforces. Does this apply right across the board in terms of um, getting people to work more together? Because I think that one of the things I've noticed in dysfunctional workplaces is that there's this sense of not rooting for the boss, of gossiping about the boss, of the us versus them. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, you know, there's a section in the book where I talk about the anytime you have a them in an mm-hmm. organization, that's a sign of dysfunction. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you say rooting against the boss. And I think that that speaks to the management style, the person in charge. If that person is perceived as someone who is coaching others and helping them get further ahead in their career, I think that the views will change. You know, that's funny. The, 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 I, I've always taken it as a, a real warning sign, the phrase, this place. If there's a workplace where people are saying like, oh, this place, all of a sudden they're, they're bonding together in opposition to the goals of their organization. They, there's something about the way it's running where they feel like their good ideas aren't being listened to and they're almost rooting for failure. Are as you say, rooting against the boss. And I think that maybe some of these relationships you're talking about, that's an example of those relationships taking an unhealthy turn. Somehow the manager's got to get involved in those relationships, not necessarily by being too buddy-buddy with the employees, but at least building some common cause behind the, behind the mission. Right. And I think another way of doing this is by providing seed money for after-work activities where people, rather than saying, okay, it's 4 o'clock on Tuesday, we're all going to get together and do yoga in the conference room, where, you know, if you maybe you don't like getting sweaty in front of your coworkers. Maybe you're not really interested in yoga. But rather than doing that, why not invite employees to say, hey, what are you guys interested in doing after work? And then you might have some people saying, I'm interested in bowling or I'm interested in taking a cooking class. And if you have four or five people who are interested in something, provide the seed money for that activity. And in giving people that opportunity to collaborate over a shared goal together, even if it's not relevant to work, that bonding experience can then influence the way people work together at work. Interesting. You're talking about bonding experiences and also perhaps in some ways bringing employers and employees closer together. But you also talk about and make a strong case for making work more autonomous. How do these two things not contradict with each other? 
Well, autonomy isn't necessarily we're going to do things my way. It's about having a sense of choice. So if I'm a manager, what I might say is, uh, Jim, I'm, I need you to w- create a podcast for our work uh, for, for our organization. It's going to help us with our, our social media. And um, rather than saying, Jim, I need you to just do this and here's how you're going to do it. You're going to model it after Freakonomics or whatever you're going to do. Uh, instead, I'm going to say, what's the best – first of all, let me, let me present a rationale for why this is critical. So now I'm bringing you into my thinking process rather than simply assuming that you have the same ideas about what's going to be successful for our company as I do because a lot of times employees don't have that same background or context. So really taking time out to provide the rationale first and then inviting the employee – so in this case, Jim – what sort of solutions do you see for producing this podcast and how might it look? Now Jim's invited to contribute his his ideas and then his approach. And we may not go with that approach, but we'll have that dialogue. And that's a way ultimately for Jim to feel more invested in the project because now he understands why we're doing it and he's had some say in how it's going to unfold. We'll have to try that sometime, Jim, actually yeah. giving you a say. <laughs> So let, let's switch gears now. Um, we've talked a lot about managers and what they can do. So what's your advice to the, the somewhat disenchanted or the worker who wants to really make the most out of their job experience? Well, it's really critical to view psychological needs not just as something that the employer was responsible for fulfilling but rather something that em- employees can t- take some steps to uh, try and fulfill themselves. So we talked about how c- growing your competence is really critical to this. And so as an employee, you really want to reframe the way you look at your job rather than simply as some, you know, something that your manager tells you to do. Look for ways to recreate your job in a way that allows you to do more of the things you enjoy doing more often. So For example, if you do a variety of tasks, but there's one or two that you really, really like, try to think about proactively about some ways that you can do more of that and come up with a plan that you can present to your manager that would allow you to spend more time doing it while still getting the work done for the department as a whole. So it's really critical when you present your case. Don't just focus on why you want to do this for yourself. Think about how it's going to benefit your organization and then make that case to your manager. So as a a longtime employer, I've had this situation many, many times where people came into me. And as you say, there's two different ways to do it. Uh, Liz Smith, the the old gossip columnist, used, used to have a saying, she'd never drop a dead cat on your boss's desk. You know, never just <laughs> never just come into the office and say, I've got this problem. I don't like this part of my job. Instead, the positive way, our organization has certain goals. Here's how I can better focus on them by spending more time doing what I'm best at. And here's my plan. And minimizing that part of the discussion where you basically admit that there are certain things you don't want to do and you're trying to get out of them because then you, you become a problem that your boss has to manage mm-hmm. instead of becoming a solution for to help your boss solve her or his problem. That's right. Yeah. When anytime you're going to a boss and presenting uh, a problem, you're essentially saying, "I need you to help me and solve this," and that's not going to be looked on too kindly. But if you can present a solution, then you're viewed completely differently as someone who's proactive. The flip side, by the way, of of looking at just um, increasing the things that you like doing is recognize that greater variety of activities actually produces greater satisfaction at work. So we tend to view the things that we like to do and not really want to go out of our comfort zone. But it's actually when we're out of our comfort zone and growing and learning new things, expanding our skill set, that we are more engaged in the work that we do. Speaking of being out of our comfort zone, number two in your suggestions of what employees can do, uh, number one being to prioritize variety and growth, is 
reframing exercise, exercising to, to what? Help stimulate the brain cells? Well, you know, the, the point here is you really want to reframe exercise as part of your job. It's not just something that you do to look good or to feel good, but actually something that makes you smarter at work. And so this is one of the things I uncovered while, while doing some of the research for the book is that exercise um, gets more blood flowing to the brain and therefore gives us greater focus in doing our work. It puts us in a better mood, which is critical when we're collaborating with others. And when you're in a better mood, it actually gets your customers happier as well because there's uh, this thing of the the emotional contagion that happens when you're interacting with people. So um, Emotional contagion. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. When you're around uh, someone who's negative, you're much more likely to become negative yourself. Part of it is a – this facial mimicry that happens. So if someone, you're around someone who's smiling, you're going to smile more often. Just the very act of smiling puts you in a good mood. Um, so that's something that's another reason for why keeping your employees happy is, is, is a valuable thing to do. The other thing about exercise is it makes us more creative and it gets uh, it activates the memory regions of our brain, which mm. allows us to soak in information at a higher rate. So rather than thinking about 5 o'clock as the time when you leave because you're a slacker, if you're going to the gym, you're actually taking your thinking elsewhere. You're, act- mm-hmm. you're going to be more productive at work as a function of, of exercising. And there's, in fact, research that organizations that allow or invite their employees to exercise either by taking an extended lunch hour or coming in late or leaving early tend to have more engaged employees and employees who feel like they're more productive. Jim's been the employer. I've been the employee. And one thing that you say about what employees can do is to make time to restock your mental energy. And I look at that and I think I'm just showered by emails from work all the time. Um, And many employers expect their workers to be always on in this age of, of mobile communications. What do you have to say about that in terms of people who feel overwhelmed because there's just not a line anymore between going home and being at work. I completely agree. And I, uh, I, from my perspective, this idea of work-life balance is completely antiquated. This, this notion that we can turn off our devices at 5 o'clock and be at home is just not realistic. However, we also need to factor in um, the, the, the data showing that unless we're taking time to really disconnect from work, either on the weekends or in the evenings, doesn't mean completely going off the grid for days at a time, but taking a few hours to be with loved ones or be really present in um, your life outside of work, you're going to be disengaged in a year. So there's actually research showing that the employees who are checking their emails after hours and on the weekends, they're the ones who are the least engaged a year later. And that's why you're seeing more and more companies um, actively trying to get their employees to disengage after hours. So there's examples in the book of companies like, um, well, the the most extreme example is Full Contact, this company in Denver, Colorado, that actually pays its employees $7,500 a year extra if they can manage to take a vacation without checking their email. Well, wow. uh, a, a friend of mine works for a German bank, and they're not allowed to check in, to call the office or check their email during certain vacation breaks. I mean, they, they really have to delegate it. I actually learned something about this. Uh, at one point in my career, I, I worked for a weekly magazine, and there were some veterans there of, of like Time magazine and People magazine. And in those magazines, when the boss, when the editor-in-chief left for vacation, 
he delegated everything to his or, or she delegated everything to their their subordinate. And if you know something big happened, um, they were totally authorized to make a decision what to put on the cover, what articles were in or out. They didn't have to pick up the phone and call the person because if you didn't do that, no one would ever get a break. So, and I thought that was a really healthy model. The pace was so relentless that you couldn't just have go have to go rely on one person. And I, I feel like. Sometimes people need to do more to uh, to implement that in their own lives. You can sort of say, "I'm not I'm not checking my email now until seven o'clock tomorrow morning." You know, yeah. and I think th- there are some very uh, fundamental things that anybody can do to to take better control of their own hours after work. And I think for, it does in in many cases. Uh, trickle down from the manager and the behaviors that they implement because you're going to see the behaviors that they what they're doing and you're going to take your lead from them. So as a manager, here's one easy thing that you can do is if you want to continue writing those emails at nine or ten o'clock at night, that's fine. Continue doing those, but. Uh, introduce one of these email programs that allows you to write the email and have it arrive first thing in the, in the next day. That way people don't feel compelled to respond at all hours. Now, we've been talking about solutions. We've been talking about making people happier at work. Is that always a good idea? Do Does fear sometimes play a role at work? Does it always you mean have a positive to be, role, like to motivate yeah, people? Right. Well, there's a difference between being engaged and being happy. So if we're talking about being enthusiastic and and excited and positive, those tend to be good things, but they're not always good things. So if you are, for example, an accountant and your job is to root out mistakes and look for errors, actually being in a slightly negative mood can be beneficial. So I talk in the book about how you really want as a manager to identify what the ideal mental state is and then try to – create that by implementing some of the some of the techniques um, that scientists have uncovered. So generally speaking, being in a positive mood is good, but it just doesn't apply to every single task. You really want to think about what the task is going to be. You know, that's so I think that's so true. I, I'm, I, I'm working on a book right now about man-made disasters. And certainly, you know, if you're the regulators trying to prevent an oil blowout on an oil platform, you don't necessarily want to be the most optimistic, sunny guy on the platform who's friends with everybody and in a great mood. You know, you do want to be you, – you want that guy to be skeptical and maybe um, doubtful and not so quick to make everybody feel good. Right. And in fact, there's research showing that sometimes being in a negative mood can actually lead to greater engagement in the long term. And it's because that negative mood leads you to explore what it is that's gone wrong and then find solutions, which then leads to greater experience of competence. Ron Friedman, it's been great having you. Terrific discussion. I know there's a whole lot more stuff we could talk about. Ron Friedman's been our guest, author of The Best Place to Work. Thank you so much for coming in, Ron. My pleasure. So, Richard, you know, you and I both love it when we agree to disagree, but it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of room for for too much controversy here. These just seem like good ideas. They really do. And not only can employers do something about this, I often feel that when it comes to improving the workplace, the talk is usually about what the boss can do, what what employers can do. But I'm struck by Ron coming in and saying, no, it's employees as well. It's it's a two-way street. And I think that um, if... It's a sign of that an employee who is kind of creative and wants to make the most of of both her own growth and helping the organization achieve its goals. 
to embrace a lot of this stuff. And it's often the employee without a great future who sort of sits back, crosses his or her arms and says, well, what are they going to do for me to make my job more creative? I do think there are some limits to this, though, in some fields. And you're writing a book about disasters. And I'm really struck by what you've said to me in the past about how sometimes you got to follow the rules. You can't be creative as an employee. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, you can follow the rules precisely and still have a disaster. Actually, in the space shuttle, the first uh, the Challenger disaster, contrary to popular belief, they were following the rules that they had written and, and they still had the disaster. So it's not enough to say you, you just have to follow the rules. And and sometimes you need some creativity to address, you know, really high-risk fields. But at the same time, you know, we hear all this fetishization of risk, like, oh, you have to embrace risk and love risk. Well, you know, risk is great if you're writing a really cool app. It's not so great if you're a pilot. And I think that it's a very complex question in high-risk fields how you encourage employees to have that degree of autonomy but also make everyone feel accountable for the safety or for not messing up. Even if lives aren't at stake, you can still wreck your company with a really bad decision. And don't you also need a change of command? I mean, if there's a big red button to push on the wall that it leads to an expensive shutdown, say, of a big factory or, or a plant or a site, doesn't that have to be one person who's given the authority to do that? Uh, or every person. <laughs> on an aircraft carrier, it's fascinating Everybody of every rank who's involved in what they call recovering an aircraft, when the planes land and they hook that wire, and it's incredibly intense, dangerous operation, and it can go wrong in a million ways. Uh, everybody involved in that operation, from the pilot to the person who's waving the plane in, the person who maintains the cable, every one of them is authorized to call off a landing. And they really celebrate that, that, like, it's okay to make a decision. I think it's very clear from what Ron Friedman said is that Improving the workforce, improving productivity, making people feel engaged at work is about so much more than simply wages and salary and, and maybe having a good coffee in the coffee machine. Or, just or, or even more than just feeling good. Right. And that there's this whole emerging field of research that really is important in helping both employers and employees do a better job. Yeah, and I think that anybody who's worked in a workplace knows there's no perfect workplace. So there's always room for improvement. I, you know, I don't care where you work. That place could work better. There's always room for improvement in our show, and we'd love to hear your feedback on our new website, howdowefixit.me. That's howdowefixit.me uh, on the net. Please uh, let us know what you think. And, of course, as always, we want to thank our team. Miranda Schaefer, our producer, for asking some great questions, or at least putting them in our ears. Joe Plord, our engineer, and GSI Studios. How do we fix it? 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.